this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by David Magdal, President and Chief Investment Officer for Main Street Capital Corporation. We're going to talk about what the past year has been like, Main Street's investment model, and what deal-making looks like in a post-pandemic world, which hopefully isn't too far off. David, thanks for joining me. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Katie. I want to start by asking about the past year. What did deal activity look like for Main Street over the last 12 months through the pandemic, and and how did that compare to previous non-pandemic years? Yeah, good, good question. So as you would imagine, the last year has been a pretty a remarkable year as far as deal flow and, and ups and downs. Um, the end of Q1 and Q2 last year, we saw a pretty severe contraction in, in our new deal activity at Main Street. Uh, things did pick up slowly in Q3 as kind of the uncertainty lingered, but uh, investment bankers tried to bring things back to market and dust off process, processes they already had uh, in place. Uh, overall, across the year, we saw deal volume down about 50% uh, versus 2019. Um, that said, you know, we've got a pretty flexible model here at Main Street where we can do minority equity, majority equity, or debt transactions. And so at the end of the day, we actually put a very similar amount of new money to work in 2020 as we did in 2019. Just the composition and focus of that capital shifted as a result of these odd market conditions. As a business development company, Main Street is a, a publicly traded investment firm. Can you talk about your experience in the public markets last year? Was was Main Street affected by the sell-off in March? And, and how did the public markets treat your stock throughout the year? Yeah, so uh, it was uh, unpleasant to bring up our stock price as the pandemic initially hit. Um, we saw our stock price decline by over 50% uh, as the market saw its, its uh, severe pullback um, in the, in, when the dislocation took place in March and April. Um, but that said, you know, it was a very scary time. We were really inwardly focused. Our stock price is more sentiment than it is reality of our underlying fundamentals and business uh, sometimes. And in a time of dislocation, it wasn't, you know, it was alarming, but not overly concerning. Uh, so we focused on creating value within our companies. Uh, the, the positive news is that today we look at our stock price. It's recovered substantially to where it was pre-pandemic. Um, and, you know, we're conservatively capitalized. So our balance sheet going into the uh, period of, of, of COVID and the dislocation was very strong. It allowed us to do good, make good, smart decisions where we saw opportunities out there and give a lot of comfort to the 70 or so portfolio companies that we have with equity because they were as, as uh, you know, concerned as, as we were about what was happening out there in the initial months or initial weeks. Uh, it was really working with them to make sure the health and safety of their employees was first and foremost uh, in all of our minds and that we could help them think through the financial conditions that impacted their individual industry. So for us, knowing that we had capital availability, knowing that we had the opportunity with a good sized platform to support those companies, although the markets reflected a, a, you know, a stock price deterioration, we were steadfast in believing that we would see this through and be you know, healthy on the other side. And Main Street has been around for a long time, several decades, I believe. And, and the firm has spent a lot of that focused on the lower middle market, even before that was as popular of a segment as it is now. So I was hoping you could talk about 
Main Street's interest in lower middle market businesses and, and whether that's changed over time? We started Main Street back in the early 2000s in its current, current form uh, before going public in 07. The lower middle market has been the cornerstone of what we do since we, since we began. Uh, and we will continue to have this be the strongest focus within our portfolio. So uh, the reason we, we feel so strongly about it is there are 175,000 businesses in the United States uh, privately held that have between 10 and 100 million of revenues. Um, those businesses are predominantly owned by families and entrepreneurs, not by institutions. Um, they have reasons for transacting, right? There are uh, individual circumstances that take place through uh, aging shareholders, through partnership disputes, whatever it might be. And our view is that we want to be there to help those companies and to capitalize on the opportunity sets that exist. We believe that through the lower middle market side, customization is important knowing how you bring something. It's not all round, you know, peg, round hole. We need to really work with those uh, clients and with a lot of the entrepreneurs, um, they don't necessarily know what the opportunity sets are. They think a sell side transaction is the only way they can get liquid. So we work and spend a huge amount of time. We've got a, a, a very uh, thoughtful uh, marketing and business development team. We've got, we call on people across the country on the intermediary front, and it's our job to educate what the different possible structures are that are available to entrepreneurs and family-owned businesses. And by doing that, we can create value for them and for us. So that's really what we try to, uh, to focus our time and energy and why we like the lower middle market so much. And, and it, you know, it's not, um, doesn't go unnoticed that the valuation multiples are more attractive on the smaller end of the market. And as private equity and institutional funds have become more and more prolific, this is a great feeding uh, ground for them to gain scale by us coming in for the first institutional capital, they can come in later on and acquire companies that we otherwise have helped to professionalize the, the way that they think about the business. And you mentioned the ability to make minority investments, and, and I've seen a few of those deals from you guys recently. Um, I'm curious whether you are doing more minority investments in, in recent months than in the past due to some of the capital needs of of lower middle market companies in this pandemic environment or whether it's, you know, on, on pace with what you've always done? The way that we uh, think about the market is we want to find really attractive companies in all sorts of different industry segments where we can um, create some value together with the management teams. And so for us, it's, we want equity exposure in everything we do in the lower middle market. It's really important for us. If you're just a lender in lower middle market companies, the best you can do is get paid back your, your, your principal in some interest rate. And you're taking risk on smaller companies. So for us, if we're going to take that risk, we really want to have some of the upside. Whether that's the majority of the upside or the minority of the upside, that'll be based on the facts and circumstances. You know, to give you a, a quick example, if there's someone that's uh, 40 years old and is talking about the huge growth potential but they're looking for a sale of 100% of their equity interest, we're not that party, we're not interested. On the other hand, if that 40-year-old owner of the business sees great opportunities to invest in the business, but gee, they've got a special needs kid or they've got an opportunity to have some generational wealth creation for all their kids, we wanna be a part of that and help them to grow the business, but have the comfort of taking some chips off the table. So to answer your specific question, uh, in 18 and 19, about 50% of our investments 
were uh, focused on majority transactions and 50% minority. In 2020, we saw that uh, go as far as our investment dollars up to over 80% in minority transactions. And there's a really simple reason for it. With the market as dislocated as it was, two things happened. One, the entrepreneurs out there were having a challenge on getting the premium multiples they felt like they deserved in the marketplace. The debt capital was a little bit more swirly and available. And uh, there was uncertainty as far as all this noise around ad backs. Well, you know, should we give you credit for this? Should we give you credit for that as the institutional buyers? And private equity has a tendency to get over opportunistic when things are dislocated. So what we did is we came in and, and focused our energy and time on doing minority transactions where that entrepreneur could keep the majority of the upside, still achieve the majority of all their goals and objectives relative to liquidity and growth capital, but still stay in control. And so we, we think that's a trend that is going to continue, but it's at least for the time being, but it's certainly someplace where we spent a lot of time and energy this last year. Hmm. Yeah. And say more about that. I'm curious whether market-wide minority transaction activity will stay high or, or whether this is just kind of a, a short-term symptom of the pandemic. So I think one of the great outcomes here is genuinely, I think that if I was a business owner and I truly believed the future of my business, I don't know that I'd be so comfortable in selling control in my company to someone that I'm meeting through a process that's in a condensed time frame, uh, you know, with, with, with strangers ultimately that I get to meet over a couple hours and a couple of days of diligence. It's a scary proposition. So I, I genuinely believe that the minority product is a really attractive market for the family-owned and entrepreneurially-owned businesses that we, we partner with. Um, what I think will be the trend that continues is now that we've educated all the intermediaries that we track out in the marketplace, and we've spent a lot of time putting proposals out and showing that we're not majority equity, pretending to be minority equity, which is a lot of the market where they have really strong controls in place and won't let the companies really continue to control their own operations. Uh, we've proven it time and time again, and our most valuable tool in the marketplace is saying to a new prospective portfolio company uh, partner, call up, pick up the phone and tell us, all of our investments are, investments are listed on our website. Tell us who you'd like to talk to. We'd be happy to make an introduction to how we behave as a minority equity partner. And the value that we get from those relationships and the experience that they have with us as partners is super strong. So I do think we're going to see this continue to grow as a portion of our business, um, but time will tell. And as a, a publicly traded vehicle, you don't necessarily have the same constraints as traditional private equity for exiting a business. What does a typical holding period look like for Main Street? How long do you do you typically hold on to businesses before you exit? For us, we, we, we kind of view ourselves a little bit as a chameleon. Um, we, we, we structure our time horizon based on the needs uh, and assuming it fits our profile of the partners we have at the portfolio company level. So sometimes that is there's an opportunity that exists. A portfolio company comes to us. They want debt beyond where a bank will go. They want some equity to make sure that they've got a well-capitalized company to go do an acquisition or to go and build a new product offering. And we go and provide that to them with the goal of selling it in a three to five to seven year period of time. Very often, though, what happens is we get into an investment on the front end and we say this might be a 10 or 15 year period uh, hold for us and for the investor. Um, there's been a lot of wealth creation by the entrepreneurs out there and we serve them, not the other way around. 
And so we have 16 portfolio companies today uh, on our balance sheet that we've been in for over 10 years. And the general theme and consistency that we see across that portfolio is they've used the free cash flow to pay down debt. We're both enjoying distributions. They've seen the growth cycle. And if they see an opportunity come knocking, we're going to reinvest. And the, the thing that is odd about private equity is when things are going the best, when you're really having your major exit and your best exits, you got to go figure out how to reinvest that capital in an unknown commodity in a new company. So we think we're really well positioned to be long-term partners and to be in investments for a really long period of time. And the added benefit is I can look an entrepreneur in the eye and say, we will sell when you and we decide the time is right, not because our LPs are at the end of our fund life and we have to return the capital. And so if you're evaluating an investment that you feel like you could potentially hold for 10 or 15 years, it makes sense for that sort of horizon. Does that change how you think about the deal, how you look at maybe the market that it's in or outsized factors, inflation, for example, things that if you were only going to be there for five years, wouldn't necessarily have as much bearing. For sure. I mean, to, to use an example, you know, some of the industries we invest in that might, you know, uh, be uh, construction oriented or might be, uh, you know, in a cyclical end market, it's difficult for private equity to invest in those industries sometimes because of their fun life. If you're three or five years into a fun life, you really got to get your timing right for the exit. For us, listen, we hope that we make good investments and we don't have bumps in the road. Experience will tell us that you do. You got to plan for the unexpected. And so for us, one of the attributes we have in our strategy is we do both the debt and the equity is when we invest. So we are 100% of the you know, third-party capital coming in with a reinvestment by the entrepreneur. So in the case of even a majority transaction, we're looking to them to reinvest alongside us. It's important. But if things go bump in the night and we end up having an 0809 come, come along, because we're the senior secured debt provider, we can help to provide some, some comfort through those difficult times as opposed to private equity, where you're only in the equity when the bank comes knocking and says, hey, profits are down by 50%. We'd like you to go put a bunch more equity into it, which is a challenge and some fun lives don't, don't allow it to happen. So to, short answer to your question, we love long, long time horizon uh, investment opportunities and we think we're really well situated to do them. And in a moment like right now where we have some industries that, you know, are are projected to come back, they will come back one day, but they're expected to struggle for a while. Are you guys in a position to potentially take advantage of some of those opportunities and help a business grow in a way that a private equity firm, a traditional source of capital just might not because it doesn't fit within that five-year time span? I mean, when we look at um, some of these opportunities that one of the challenges I think that exists for entrepreneurs is trying to figure out the motivations of the people on the other side of the table, right? And so in a, in a COVID world where you've got a lot of noise in your numbers and concerns about what will happen and how fast will the recovery come and such, you'd like someone that's very steady handed. And, you know, with our investments, uh, we've got, you know, uh, just about four and a quarter billion of assets under management. No one company represents more than two and a half, three percent of our investment assets. So what that allows us to do is be very level uh, set when times become, when, when there are disruptions in the marketplace. So for us, we're not going to knee jerk when things are going poorly. 
we can see things through. There's a reason to transact and we believe in the company and we believe in the management team. We'll partner with them and, and be there for the, uh, through, through the tougher part of the cycle. And so when we look at COVID and we wonder how long it might take uh, an industry to recover, as long as we can get a good understanding of what the near-term prospects are, we don't have to have a you know, 15% compounded annual growth rate to, to have a thesis. We need to have a good, honest management team that has a strategy for the, for the near term. And I would imagine in the, the lower middle market and some of the businesses that you're working with there, you mentioned earlier, these tend to be family sellers, entrepreneurs. And I would imagine this comes with the added challenge sometimes of dealing with multiple generations of a family. They may not all be on the same page about selling the business in the first place or about who to partner with. Um, so I wonder how often do these types of issues come up for you and, and have you developed a sort of playbook for working through them with family-owned sellers? We, we, we really look at things with a very consultative approach. Um, there is no, I think that our strategy has been and continues to be to create playbooks for general themes and then customize those themes based on the facts and circumstances that exist at the company. So as an example, a uh, family-owned business that has an owner that might be in his and her 60s and 70s as, as owners of the business, where uh, they've got multiple kids, you might have three kids, one who's in the business, two who aren't. How do you navigate the sense of fairness for that one child who wants to stay in the business and not you know, have a... Have a a plan that gives them liquidity at some point in the future, whereas the other ones might want to have some money and look, you know, establish trust for their future. So we're used to navigating how we talk about that and coming in as an objective set of eyes and helping those founders navigate the family circumstances that exist through multi-generational uh, type of situations. Um, we also have playbooks on different structures. Is it a C-Corp? Is it an LLC? How do you cut to the chase quickly and, and create some value for the intermediary that's handling that relationship so that we can cut to the chase quickly and come up with some structural uh, benefits that others might not see out there. So we've been at this for a while. It's been over 20 years and um, we really are indifferent on this majority versus minority type of approach. So we really try to do our best to work on a customized basis and go to the playbooks and experience sets that we've had over all these years. No, that makes sense. And and for my last question for you, David, I wanted to ask about, you know, looking ahead, whether there's anything you can share about Main Street's plans for the coming year or, or other things that you're thinking about as the economy recovers or, or risks for that matter. I mean, there's nothing remarkable about where we're headed from here. Um, we're planning on uh, sticking to our knitting. Uh, we've done well over the years by just uh, investing and uh, markets that are prolific where valuations are high, but also looking when there's been dislocation and continuing to invest through the cycle. Um, we, we've got investments in over 50 industries. Our view is that there's opportunity in more prolific times and in more difficult times. And the most important thing we can do is to align our interests with the owners of the, the businesses, our co-owners in the businesses we invest in and put ourselves in a position where when they do well, we do well. When we do poorly, they do poorly. It's just the basics of alignment of interests and, and uh, thinking about how to structure things in a mutually beneficial way. And so our outlook, we've invested a lot in our infrastructure here at Main Street and in our people. Um, so we're, we're hopeful we'll continue to grow our practice substantially as we have since we went public back in 07 and our assets under management will grow uh, in this segment in the lower middle market. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, David. I've enjoyed the conversation. Katie, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.